You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Good evening. If you've got your Bibles there, uh, please go ahead and open them up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 is where we'll be, and as you're turning there, Ephesians 4, verse 26, let me ask you, how do you typically respond when you receive really, really bad customer service, okay? Really bad customer service, whether it's over the phone, whether it's in person, how do you respond to really bad customer service, or, or how do you respond when you are driving on the highway and someone pulls up right behind you, and they're like three inches off your bumper and tailgating you. How do you respond to that? Or how do you respond when you are at the mall and parking spaces are limited? They cannot be found. And finally, you find one, and and someone's just pulling out. And just as they're pulling out, you've got your blinker on. And just as you're about to pull in, someone else comes in and steals it on you. Because anger, anger is uh, one thing that absolutely everybody here struggles with on some level. But here's the question. Here's the question. Is that okay? Is that okay? Is that okay for us to be angry? Because some of us here have been taught that it is always wrong to be angry, that Christians don't get angry. Have you been taught that? Because that is false. It is not always wrong to be angry. In fact, sometimes it would be sinful for us not to be angry. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, if a man were to see sin and not be angry with it, he would sin through not being angry. If a man were to see sin and not be angry with it, he would sin through not being angry. So here's what we need to see. That it is absolutely wrong to be sinfully angry. But it is absolutely right for us to be righteously angry. And so what's the difference between the two? How do I know whether my anger is sinful or righteous? Well, before we can understand that, we have to understand what anger is. So let's have a look at a definition of anger up on the screen. Anger is this. Anger is a feeling of outrage over a perceived injustice. It's a feeling of outrage over a perceived injustice. Anger is this very, very, very powerful emotion that rises up in us and says, I'm against that. And and, and, and that's not right, and I'm opposed to that. So let's have a look at the difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. And as we do that, maybe you can just be asking the Lord right now to give you some clarity on what category your anger typically falls into, righteous or sinful. And maybe you're thinking, well, I think the Lord's already given me some clarity on that, and most of my anger is uh, definitely not in the righteous category. And whoever you are, okay, I can definitely relate to you, all right? But let's begin with this, uh, righteous anger. This is what righteous anger looks like. Righteous anger is, first, it's God-centered. Uh, Righteous anger flows out of love for God, and it is passionately opposed to this. It is passionately opposed to God being sinned against, and it is passionately opposed to God not receiving the worship that he deserves. So righteous anger is God-centered, it flows out of a love for God, and it is passionately opposed to God being sinned against and God not receiving the worship 
that he deserves. Righteous anger says this. Righteous anger says that Jesus Christ, he should be the praise of every tongue. And Jesus Christ, he should be the joy of every heart, but he's not. And that's not right. Now, would you say that most of your anger falls into this category? Would you say that usually when you get angry, it's because God is being sinned against? Because if you're anything like me, if you're being honest, you're like, no, that's not usually why I'm angry. If I'm angry, it's usually for another reason. And so what would that other reason be? Well, let's throw that up on the screen right now. It's this other category called sinful anger. Sinful anger. Notice this. A sinful anger is self-centered instead of being God-centered. A sinful anger flows out of love for self instead of love for God. And, and sinful anger is passionately, passionately, passionately opposed to not getting what I want. Okay? Sinful anger is passionately opposed to not getting what I want. So let me ask you, which category would you say that most of your anger usually falls into? Does most of your anger usually fall into the category of righteous anger or sinful anger? And if you're not sure, if you're not sure, if you came with anybody tonight, just ask them. Just ask them. I'm sure they'll be more than happy to fill you in on which category your anger usually falls into, okay? But here's what we need to see. That the kind of anger we have, it shows us what kingdom we're living for. The kind of anger that we have, it shows us what kingdom we are living for. We can think of it like this. Our anger is like a giant window into our hearts that shows us what kingdom we're usually living for. Here's what I mean up on the screen. Righteous anger is like a giant window. And if we open up the window of righteous anger, here's what we see, that behind it is a heart that is for the kingdom of God. So when we open up the window of righteous anger, we can see clearly that is a heart that is for the kingdom of God. But sinful anger, sinful anger, when we open up that window, we can see clearly that that is a heart that is living for the kingdom of self. Our anger always points us, always directs us, always reveals what kingdom we're living for. And if you are here today and you struggle with sinful anger like I do and like the rest of us do, and you would desperately love to see the Lord do a work in your life, then I have good news. And here it is, that the Holy Spirit, He wants to do this work in us, but it's going to require something on our part, and here it is, that we fill our hearts with the truth of the gospel. Because filling our hearts with the truth of the gospel is the means that the Holy Spirit uses to transform our hearts. Filling our hearts with the truth of the gospel is the means that the Holy Spirit uses to change our kingdom loyalties, which means this, that the more my heart is filled with the truth of the gospel, the more often I'm going to be righteously angry, and the less often I'm going to be sinfully angry. Or we can think of it like this, the more our hearts are filled with the truth of the gospel, 
The more we'll be angry for the right reasons, and the less we'll be angry for the wrong reasons. Which leads us right into our first point today, which is this. The more my heart is filled with the truth of the gospel, the more I'll be angry for the right reasons. The more my heart is filled with the truth of the gospel, the more I'll be angry for the right reasons. Have a look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Ephesians 4, verse 26, Paul says this. He says, be angry. Do you see that? Be angry, and we'll stop right there. Now, this is not a command to be sinfully angry, all right? Have a look again back at verse 26. Paul says, be angry, and notice, and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. And so if God is commanding us through Paul to be angry and to not sin, then there must be a way for us to be angry and not sin. And what is that way called? That way is called righteous anger. Righteous anger. So when Paul is saying, be angry, he's giving us a command. This is a command to stop being passive and to start getting angry for the right reasons. When Paul's commanding us to be angry, he's giving us a command saying, stop being passive. Stop being passive and start getting angry for the right reasons. And maybe you're thinking, well, like what reason? Well, like this one that Jesus Christ is not receiving the praise that he deserves both in our hearts and in the world. Now honestly ask yourself, does that matter to me? Does it bother me that Jesus Christ, who is infinitely worthy of being praised, is not receiving the praise that he is due, but instead is being dishonored and sinned against everywhere. Because Paul says, be angry. Be angry at sin. Be angry that God, who is infinitely worthy of our worship, is not only not being worshipped, but he's actually being opposed. And it's happening everywhere, including in our hearts. Be angry. Be angry. But how do you become someone who is angry for the right reasons when so often we are angry for all the wrong reasons? Well, the answer to that question is found in the very way that Paul structures and writes his letters, including this one. Because notice this, that this command to be angry is not found in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul does not say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, be angry! Okay? He doesn't say that. In fact, he doesn't give this command to be angry until chapter 4, verse 26. So here's what we need to see that the fuel that we need to obey this command to be angry is found in the first three chapters. And so what did Paul say in chapters 1 through 3? Well, let's have a look at a summary up on the screen. Here's what Paul taught. First of all, he, he, taught, he teaches us about who we were. If you are in Jesus Christ, this is who you were, dead. No spiritual life whatsoever. We were dead. We were slaves of sin. All we ever did was sin. We were enslaved to sin. We were without hope. No hope for the future whatsoever. We were without God. 
in the world without God, and, and this, children of wrath, the wrath of God upon us. So this is who you were. This is who I was, dead, no life, enslaved to sin, without any hope, without God, and God's wrath upon us. How long ago for you was this you? Paul says, this is who you were. But then he says, this is who you are. This is now who you are. He says, now, now, you are united to Jesus Christ. And this is the greatest news in the world, that by faith, you have been united to Jesus Christ. And because of that, you've been forgiven and redeemed through his blood. Forgiven of all your sin. Redeemed, purchased off the slave block. Redeemed through his blood reconciled to God through the cross, brought to God through the cross, and now you've been made a citizen of God's kingdom, and you've been adopted as a child of God. You've been made a child of the king of the eternal kingdom. You've been now made an heir of God, and he has done all of this so that we can now fulfill our purpose of praising him both now and forever. That's who we were. This is now who we are. This is what Paul is teaching in chapters 1 through 3, that God did absolutely everything necessary to free us from the penalty of sin and free us from slavery to sin to bring us to himself so that we can praise him both now and forever. So why then did Paul wait until chapter 4 to give this command to be angry? Here's why. Because Paul knows for the church to be angry for the right reasons, we first have to have our hearts filled with the truth of the gospel. So before commanding the church to be righteously angry at sin, to be righteously angry that God is not receiving the praise that he is due, he first points to the gospel. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. That over 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus Christ, to earth to rescue us. And he gave himself over to be mocked and to be horrifically tortured and then to be brutally crucified in our place. And as he hung on that cross in unimaginable physical agony, he then took upon himself all of our sin. He, he, he became our sin. He took upon himself all of our past sin. And then he took upon himself all of our present sin. And he took upon himself all of our future sin. And it was there on that cross that God's furious wrath against us for our sin was poured out upon him until our debt was completely paid in full. And not only was our sin transferred to him, but his righteousness, his perfect commandment keeping was credited to our account as though we did it. So when God pulls out your file, it says that you've never sinned. And it says you've only ever obeyed him. And when we really start to understand this, when we really begin to understand what we deserve, that right now we deserve to be experiencing the wrath of God and we're not when we really begin to understand that every single second that ticks by on the clock right now, that we aren't receiving the wrath of God is another second of priceless freedom that was purchased for us at the cross at Calvary. 
And we really begin to understand that instead of receiving the wrath that we deserve, that God has made us citizens of his eternal kingdom. But not only that, he went even further and he adopted us as his own children and and made us children of the king of this eternal kingdom, making us heavenly royalty and heirs of this kingdom. When we really begin to understand this more and more, and then we keep filling our hearts and filling our hearts and filling our hearts with these gospel truths, we start to get angry. We start to get angry that he is not receiving the praise that he deserves, especially from our own lives. Paul says, get angry. Get angry for the right reasons. Let your anger be redeemed, that it can be turned into a force for good. Kind of like if scientists were somehow able to capture a hurricane, and they capture that hurricane, and they kind of turn it sideways, and then they're able to slowly release it and aim it at a wind farm so that it produces electricity, so that something that was so destructive has now been made constructive and productive. That's exactly what the Spirit of God wants to do with our anger in our lives, and He chooses to do it with His gospel. Because when our hearts are filled with the truth of the gospel, we begin to get angry for the right reasons. And so what does that actually look like? Well, consider the example of the Apostle Paul himself, the first time he ever sees Athens. The Apostle Paul is there waiting in Athens for his companions, and as he walks into Athens and sees it for the first time, It's a staggering sight because there's more idols in Athens than there are people. There's just idolatry everywhere. Look at how he responds up on the screen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, this word provoked means that he was stirred to anger. But it doesn't mean that he was just stirred to anger and then, and then he just kind of stayed simmering angry. This word actually means that he was stirred to anger that then led to action. And so, and so what kind of action was the Apostle Paul led to do? Did he, did he call fire down from heaven and then just burn up the whole city? Is that what he did? Well, have a look at the action that his righteous anger led to. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul was provoked to anger, and this righteous anger in him, this is what it led him to do, not to call down fire from heaven, but to patiently reason with anyone who would listen to him. Look what else. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The way Paul's righteous anger expressed itself was by preaching the gospel, preaching the cross, that Jesus died to make payment for sins, but then God rose him up three days later, proving that he had indeed made sufficient payment for sin. This is how Paul's righteous anger expressed itself constructively, productively. Now, righteous anger can take a lot of different forms. Because it can stand against sin, 
in a lot of different ways, sometimes in, in very practical ways, by uh, protecting those who are being exploited or, or by delivering those who are in danger or, or by helping those who are not being treated with dignity. But in all of these things, righteous anger is always, always, always governed by love. It always points to the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And it never moves away from the main thing, which is seeking to make disciples who worship Jesus Christ. Because he is infinitely worthy of everyone's worship. So it's time to ask ourselves, how much righteous anger is there in my life? How much righteous anger is there in my life? Because I think for, for many of us here, if we're honest, we would say, not a lot, but I want there to be. Amen? I want there to be. And so how can our hearts be changed? How can our hearts be changed? Well, here's how. Our hearts need to be filled with the truth of the gospel. Because the more our hearts are filled with the truth of the gospel, the more we'll be angry for the right reasons. And so how can my heart be filled with the truth of the gospel? Well, here's how. Here's how. We need to do it. We need to prioritize this because our hearts aren't going to be filled with the truth of the gospel unless we fill them with the truth of the gospel. Make sense? Our hearts aren't going to be filled with the truth of the gospel unless we fill them with the truth of the gospel. It's not enough for us to open our Bibles once a week or once a month. Our hearts are not going to be filled with the truth of the gospel if that's what we're doing. If that's what we're doing, it's kind of like you, you dig a hole in the sand and then you pour some water in and then you leave and you expect that it's still going to be full the next day. It's going to be empty. The only way that you can dig a hole in the sand and keep it full is by keep adding water, and you keep adding water, and you keep adding water, and our hearts are exactly the same way. If our hearts are going to stay filled with the truth of the gospel, we have to keep filling them and filling them and filling them and filling them over and over and over again. And so how can we do that? What does that actually look like to keep our hearts filled with the truth of the gospel? Well, here are four ways. Four ways that we can keep our hearts filled with the truth of the gospel. Here's the first way. Read it. Read it. Seems pretty straightforward. Read it. To have a time every day where we're actually opening up the Bible and we're actually reading God's word. It's wonderful. It's a great thing to be reading other gospel books as well. But we've got to read the book. Amen? We have to have time every day. We're opening up the Bible. We're reading it. That's the first way. Read it. Here's the second way. Pray it. Pray it. Pray the gospel. Have a time where you are going uh, away and you're being with the Lord every day and you are praying. And as you're praying, pray with thanksgiving for the gospel. Remind God of all the ways that you are thankful for his gospel. And in doing so, what are you doing? You are preaching the gospel to yourself. You're reminding yourself of all these glorious truths of the gospel. Read it. Pray it. And now this, speak it. Speak it. And so speaking the gospel, yes, to, to, to people who don't know Jesus Christ, looking for opportunities to share, but also get together with other people who love the gospel, talk about the gospel, and of course, preach the gospel to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. When's the last time you preached the gospel to yourself? And you said, hey, soul, soul, wake up, soul. I need to preach the gospel to you again. Man, we need to do this. I need to do this. Read it, pray it, speak it, and then this, post it. 
post it. I get so encouraged when you go over to someone's house and you see they've got verses like stuck on their mirror and the verses stuck on their cabinetry and, and you get in their car and there's a verse stuck on their, on their glove dash. Why? Why is that so encouraging? Because it shows their need. That's a person who's saying, I am desperate. I need my heart filled with the truth of the gospel. Read it, pray it, speak it, post it. Because we need to have our hearts filled with the truth of the gospel. Because the more our hearts are filled with the truth of the gospel, the more we'll be angry for the right reasons. But not only that, there's also this, which is our second and our final point of this evening. The more my heart is filled with the truth of the gospel, the less I'll be angry for the wrong reasons. The more my heart is filled with the truth of the gospel, the less I'll be angry for the wrong reasons. Have a look back at verse 26. Ephesians 4, verse 26, Paul says, Be angry, and notice, and do not sin. Be angry, and do not sin. So first we've been commanded to be angry for the right reasons, and now we're being commanded to not be angry for the wrong reasons. Why? Why? Well, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because of the gospel. Be angry and do not sin. So here's the question. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you just stop being sinfully angry? Well, to dig deep into that question, please turn with me in your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4 is where we're going to be spending the remainder of our time. Uh, James chapter 4 to answer this question. How do we stop being sinfully angry? Can the roots of sinful anger actually be severed in our lives? Well, we're going to look uh, this evening at one kind of sinful anger. We can't possibly look at every kind of sinful anger, but we're going to look at one kind, and probably the most typical kind, the most common kind, it's the kind of sinful anger that leads to the everyday relational conflicts of life that we all so often experience. And there's no place that more clearly explains how this kind of sinful anger plays out in our lives than James chapter 4. So let's have a look at it together. James chapter 4, verse 1. Are you there? Are you there? James 4, verse 1. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Verse 1. James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? What a great question. What a great question. Why do we argue? Why do we fight? What's behind it? What's fueling it? What's causing it? Have a look back at verse 1. Is it not this? Tell us, James, what is it? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So notice these three words in, in, in verses 1 and 2. Passions, desire, and covet. Do you see those? Passions, desire, and covet. Have a look again at verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions, your passions are at war within you? Verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. This is why we get sinfully angry and argue and fight with one another. We desire and we do not have, and so we murder. 
murder here is not talking about the physical act of murder, but the kind of murder that Jesus talked about, murder that happens in the heart called sinful anger. And so why do we get angry? Why do we argue? Why do we fight with one another? Here's why. Because we want something. We want something, but then someone gets in the way, and that makes us angry, and so we fight and quarrel. We want something, but then someone gets in our way, and we get angry about it, and we fight, and we quarrel. It's not super complicated. This is why, and this is what's going on in marriages in this room every single day. This is what's going on between children and parents in this room every single day. This is what's going on between friends. This is going on in the workplace every single day. We want something. Someone gets in the way that makes us angry and we fight and we argue and we quarrel. But we don't just sort of desire things. It's more than that. Have a look at verse 2. Verse 2, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And that word covet is a stronger word than desire because covet is worship talk. To covet is to want something in an idolatrous way. To covet is to want something more than I want God. And this is why we get sinfully angry. We covet. I want something more than I want God. And, 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 and then someone gets in the way of that, and that makes me angry, and then we fight and quarrel and argue. Because when someone gets between us and our idols, there's going to be war. When someone gets between us and our idols, there's going to be war. And listen, this is happening everywhere. Not just at your house. And not just at my house. I promise. Church is a safe place, right? Is church a safe place? Okay. How many of us ever have arguments at our house? Anyone? You have arguments at your house? Okay, so most of you, so the other ones, the other ones, the other ones, how many of us have the silent treatment at our house? Silent treatment? Okay. Here's why. Here's why. Because someone's getting between us and our idols. We can think of it like this up on the screen. There's something that we want, something that we want more than God. It can be anything, but when we think broad categories, here's some broad ca- categories. We want easy life. We want comfort. We want pleasure. This is what we want. And then here's what happens. Someone gets in the way. Someone gets in the way of my comfort. Someone gets in the way of my pleasure. Someone gets in the way of my, my comfortable, easy life. There's, there's drivers that get in the way of my easy life. There are disobedient children that get in the way of my comfortable, easy life. And that makes me angry because they're getting between me and my idol. Yes, I know God says I should love that person, but they're between me and my idol. And that makes me angry. This is why we get sinfully angry because people get between us and our idols. But here's what we need to see. Not getting what we want may be the reason we get angry, but it's not the cause. Not getting what we want may be the reason that we get angry, but it's not the root cause. There's actually something much deeper 
and bigger and darker going on here that's actually causing sinful anger. So let's see how God continues to unpack this for us. Have a look at verse 4. Verse 4. James continues, he says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So when we want something too much, when we want something more than God, not only does God call that idolatry, but he calls it adultery. And why does he call it adultery? He calls it adultery because we are his. We belong to him. And and we'll find our greatest joy and our greatest satisfaction in our relationship with him. But here's what we so often do. We turn away from God and we seek to replace him with something in the world. God calls that adultery because that's exactly what it is. It's spiritual adultery. And because of that, he says this in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose that is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God is so jealous for our affections and it so grieves him when we commit spiritual adultery. But we need to see that even our spiritual adultery is not the root cause of our sinful anger, but it too is pointing at something that's deeper and darker and bigger And what is that problem? Well, look again at verse 4. Verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so the reason reason we worship idols and the reason that we commit spiritual adultery is because we're already friends with the world meaning that we are already thinking like the world and acting like the world and setting ourselves up as enemies of God, just like the world does. And this is pointing to our deepest problem. This is pointing us to the biggest problem. This is pointing us to ultimately what's causing our sinful anger. And to help us better understand this cause, uh, let's consider for a moment the story of Absalom. The story of Absalom from 2 Samuel, maybe you're familiar with it. Absalom was a son of King David, and King David had several sons. One of his sons was Amnon. And if you're familiar with this story, when you hear the word Amnon, you're like, oh, right? And here's why. Because Amnon horrifically sinned against their sister Tamar. He violated their sister Tamar. And, and uh, when Absalom heard about this, he was enraged. Second Samuel says that he hated Amnon. And so here's what he did. He sent his servants over to murder him. And they did. And Absalom, not knowing really how David's going to react to this, he flees and he's gone for three years. And we're told that David missed him, that his heart longed for him. And so he sent a messenger out to bring him back. But here's the stipulation. He said, you can come back and live in Jerusalem, but you can't come into my presence. You can't live in my house. You can be in Jerusalem, but you've got to be over there. And that's the way things were for two years. Absalom was not allowed into David's presence until one day he was begging uh, Joab to come into the king's presence. And here's what happened. Here's what happened up on the screen. It says, Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom 
So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. So we have this moment of, of reconciliation. This moment of after five years of all of this turmoil that there's, there's reconciliation. And so what is Absalom going to do next? Is he going to take his place at his father's side? Is he going to bask in the, in the forgiveness that he's been given? Is that what he's going to do? Well, here's what he does. As soon as they're reconciled, he starts a rebellion and he tries to build up his own kingdom. He betrays his father, he commits treason, and he tries to enthrone himself as the king. Now, how does this make any sense at all? Can you believe that he would do that after being reconciled after so long, that he would set himself up as an enemy of David? But listen, it's exactly what we do. We act just like Absalom. Because we've been reconciled to God, and yet we commit treason, and we try to enthrone ourselves as our own king and live for our own kingdom, and then we set ourselves up as enemies of God, and our sinful anger is proof that we do this because our anger always reveals what kingdom we're actually living for. And what's it called when you and I are living for our own kingdom? Here's what it's called. It's called pride. Pride. And pride is the root of sinful anger. Pride is the bottom. Pride is the deepest thing causing and driving our sinful anger. It's the desire to be on the throne. It's the desire for my kingdom come and my will be done. It's the desire to be our own authority, our own God. And this is the root of sinful anger. It is pride. This is what's behind idolatry. This is what's behind spiritual adultery. It's pride. It's my kingdom come and my will be done. And if anyone gets in my way, there will be war. This is what pride does. But listen, we're not here to live for our own kingdom. We are here to live for his kingdom. Amen? And as much as we may not want to admit it, the truth is, is that pride is in every single one of us. And here's why. Because there is a sinful flesh in every single one of us that is continually bombarding us with prideful desires. Here's what I mean up on the screen. Think of it like this, that our flesh in us is kind of like this volcano that is constantly erupting prideful desires and just sending these desires of self into our hearts 24-7, 365 days a year. Self, 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 self. And if this is the condition of our hearts, if the condition of our hearts is they are dry places, lacking gospel truth, then man, it's easy, easy for that heart to get set on fire with pride. It's just going to take a spark, and that heart gets set on fire with pride so easily. And when a heart is set on fire with pride, it will burn with sinful anger when it can't have what it wants. This is what's happening in our lives and in our homes every day. And so what's the solution? Well, listen, get excited. <laughs> get excited, all right? Have a look at verse 6. Verse 6, look at what he says. But he gives more grace. 
And I think we really need to cheer here, literally. You're going to have another run at it, okay? Because listen to what God is saying. God is saying that he has grace for all of this. God has a solution to this problem. Amen. Yes, yes. He has a solution, a solution to this problem, and he wants to give it to us. So we're going to try it again, all right? Verse 6. But he gives more grace. Yes. Amen. 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 Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble, and this is our answer. This is the solution for our sinful anger. It's humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves. But here's the question. When I have a heart that's set on fire with pride, how do I just humble myself? How do you, how do, you do that? Well, John Stott has the answer for us up on the screen. Look what he says. Every time we look at the cross, Christ seems to be saying to us, I am here because of you. It is your sin I am bearing. Your curse I am suffering. Your debt I am paying. Your death I am dying. Nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness, until we have visited a place called Calvary. It is there at the foot of the cross that we shrink down to our true size. The only way that a heart that is set on fire with pride can be put out is by pouring the truth of the gospel all over it. The only way that a heart that is on fire with pride can be put out is by pouring the truth of the gospel all over it. But not only that, the only way to keep that heart from getting set on fire in the future is to keep it filled with the truth of the gospel. David said this, he said, I have stored up your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Paul in Colossians said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The only way to keep the heart from getting set on fire with pride in the future is to make it an ocean of gospel truth. To make it look like this. Because this sinful flesh isn't going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. It's going to keep uh, launching these hot coals of prideful desires into our heart. But when our heart is in a dry place, but instead our heart is like an ocean of gospel truth, those hot prideful desires, yes, they're going to hit that. They're going to hit that heart, and they might increase the temperature, and they might fizzle out a little bit, but that heart's not going to get it set on fire. Which is why we need to keep our hearts filled with the truth of the gospel, starting with hearing this right now. That if you are in Jesus Christ, then every single act of treason that you have ever done or ever will do and every single act of pride that you have ever done or ever will do, and every single act of spiritual adultery, and every single act of idolatry, and every single act of sinful anger that you have ever done or ever will do has already been placed on the cross on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, and the fierce wrath of God against all those sins was poured out upon him in full, so that now there is no condemnation for you and I in Jesus Christ. And so tell me, amen, tell me, how should we now respond? 
How should we respond to this gospel? Well, here's how. In light of the gospel, we need to get righteously angry at our sinful anger. We must get righteously angry at our sinful anger, which is to say, we must get righteously angry at our pride. We need to attack pride. We need to attack sinful anger ruthlessly every single time they rear their ugly heads. We need to do this. We need to go swat on them, all right? We need to go swat on them, and here's what I mean. It's an acronym, of course, you know that. Okay, here we go. SWAT, here we go. So first thing, so in, the, in the midst of sinful anger, first thing, stop, stop. Because what, what is the desire of the flesh there? Keep going. Make this an avalanche. Just, just keep this thing going because it feels so good. But the first thing we need to do is just stop, stop. And then this W, what do I want? Ask yourself in the moment, what do I want? Because someone's getting between me and what I want and I'm getting angry. What is it that I want? Stop. Ask yourself, what am I pursuing? What do I want right now? And then this, admit the kingdom that you're living for. Am I living for the kingdom of God right now? Or am I living for the kingdom of self? And then T, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. Stop. Ask yourself, what do I want right now? A, admit the kingdom I'm living for. And then T, turn to Christ. Remember him. Remember the gospel and humble yourself before the Lord. Because the more I fill my heart with the truth of the gospel, the more I will be angry for the right reasons and the less I will be angry for the wrong reasons. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you that your word speaks to everything. And your word is able to, to open up our hearts and to show us really what's going on. And, God, we thank you um, that we can open up uh, to Ephesians 4 and we can open up to James chapter 4 and, and have a, a diagnostic done on our hearts. And so, God, we are praying now, we are praying now, that we would have hearts that are living for the kingdom of God and not for the kingdom of self. We are praying that you would do a miraculous work in us through your gospel, God, that you would convince us that we need to fill our hearts with the, the truth of the gospel and keep our hearts filled and that you will use this in our lives. And we're asking, God, that you more and more would get the praise and the worship and the glory that you deserve from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.